Good morning. I hate to break up all the amazing conversations, but it's time to worship God and have some conversating with our amazing Savior, all right? Why don't you guys stand up? Those walls that we call sin and shame They were like prisons that we couldn't escape Every day we died, we rose Those walls of rubble now Remember those giants we call death and rain They were like mountains that stood in our way Giants are dead now. This is our God. This is who He is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what He does. He saves us. Before the cross, keep the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim. This is our God, King Jesus. That fear that took our breath away We're so weak that we could barely pray We heard, we whispered Now those altars in the wilderness Tell the story of His faithfulness Never once did He fail And He never went Good morning. You got one minute. Say hi to somebody next to you. <laughs> we got plenty of ways. There is something for everybody to get plugged in. 
We're going to celebrate a, a time of communion um, in a bit. Right now we're going to worship through giving and, and the offering, and then we'll have a time of communion, and then we'll have our, our Bible study. So let's pray. God, I thank you. You're amazing. And, and everything that you do, your hand is always moving and guiding and directing and providing. God, this first day of the week, we come to you out of obedience and out of love to worship you and honor you for all that you've given and all that you've done. This offering that is being gathered up is a recognition of what you've provided for us. Our food, our clothes, the roof over our heads. God, we want to give back to you the first of that which you've given to us to say thank you. And may these resources meet the, the needs of people, continue the gospel, support the missionaries, and all those that, that are hurting. We thank you for the privilege of being here. We, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 
God, as we come before you in this time of communion, we reflect on the fact that we have been set free. Free from sin, sorrow, and shame because of what you did. Jesus gave us a couple of things to do. To remember Him in communion and to be baptized. These are ordinances that He set aside that would remind us of our relationship with Him. Through baptism, we consider ourselves dead to sin. And as He rose alive to Christ, through communion, we remember that the penalty of our sin was paid for at the cross. When we think about the cross and all that it means, we could spend all our life rejoicing The fact that we don't have to stand before a holy God to give account for our sin because Jesus paid that price. When He died and He said it's finished, that penalty of sin was paid for in full. So in obedience, we come before the Lord and we celebrate this communion. In a moment, the ushers will come and they'll pass out the cracker and the grape juice. There's nothing sacred about the cracker and the grape juice in itself. It's a cracker. It's grape juice. What's sacred is in the work. What's sacred is in the power of the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all unrighteousness and sin. So, as a Christ follower, this table is for you. If you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, then please take the elements. If you have sin in your life, you're not willing to give up 
to confess. Let the elements go by. This is an act of worship. This is an act of saying to Jesus individually and corporately, thank you for all that you've done. So if the ushers would come forward. God, we thank you for, for these elements. Lord, as they go out to each hand, as this tray goes through, may we really consider the unity that we have with you in Christ, both in death, burial, and resurrection. May we confess our sins before you and take these elements in a worthy manner. As the elements are passed out, hang on to them until everybody's been served and then we'll take them together in a moment.
what would it be like for you in an unforgiven condition to stand before a holy God? It would be terrifying. We would have to give an answer for all of our sin. We would have to stand in judgment. And we would have to take upon ourselves eternal pain and suffering for the consequences of our sin. An eternal death. This bread that you hold is a reminder that Jesus loves you, gave His life for you, took your place before His Holy Father to receive divine wrath for all the sin of the world. And Jesus asked one thing. As often as you eat this bread, remember me. God, we thank You for this bread. We thank You for what this bread represents. That right now, as Your kids, God, we stand before the throne of grace, forgiven, sins paid for, never remembered against us again. It was free to us. But Jesus, it cost You Your life. You gave Your life and You took it up again so that we might have new life. We thank You for this bread because it reminds us of new life. An eternal life with our Father in Heaven. We thank You for all that it means in Jesus' name. Let's receive the bread. The night before Jesus died, He took the cup from the Passover table, the third cup, and it was the cup of redemption. It was part of this Passover meal that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was celebrating with His disciples. And He said, this cup represents a new covenant. A new promise. A new kind of promise. And as often as you drink this cup, remember Me. It's in remembrance that we lift this glass. It's in remembrance of Jesus and the blood that would flow from His head, His hands, His feet, and His side. His blood that has washed away all our sin. Paying that penalty. His blood that was shed for you and me. We should never take this cup for granted. We should never take forgiveness for granted. We should embrace it and say thank you. God, we thank you for this cup and all that it means. It is beyond our comprehension to understand how holy God would add to Himself humanity, die on a cross death, to rise again, suffer in our place for His own creation, to redeem us. It's beyond our comprehension, so what we say is thank you. Thank you for the greatest gift that has and ever will exist. The gift of life through you, Jesus. We thank you for this cup and all that it means. In Jesus' name, let's receive it together.
may be seated. The ushers are going to come forward now, and, and as is a practice that we have here at our church, we have joined together loving God through worship and through communion with loving others through a, a benevolent offering. Benevolent just means a grace. It's gifts. This offering is specially designated and ministered by the elders and a, and a team to be able to meet needs of people. As God has so loved us, we want to love one another. And so with that, this offering just goes to meet people's needs, whether it's medical needs or, or whatever it needs to be done, that we can show love, not just to this congregation, but to the community. God, I thank you for this offering and all that it, that it does for people. You have done so much for us, God. We want to give to others that are hurting. Whether they need a ramp because they can't get into their house or they need a roof or they need medical bills or, or, or whatever the case is. Lord, use every dollar for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray that, that people will know your love through the hands of this congregation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
trust you, God. I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear your word this morning. God, just uh, move out all the distractions and all of the different things that we focus on. I pray this morning we would give attention to you because you're worth it, God. All these idols and all these different things that we give our attention to can't save us. But Jesus, just like we just practiced earlier by communion, Lord, you, you bled, you died for us. God, the the least we could do is give you the next 40 minutes or more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You would open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 15. As we continue learning the lessons that God has for us in the land of Canaan, have you ever had somebody break a promise with you? Some of you are like, yeah. I think we all have. The difficulty, and we talk about the promises of God are yes and amen, but when we think about these broken promises, how do broken promises impact you? And, and promises come in a couple of different forms, just either a verbal promise or a covenant relationship within that. And we think about how these broken promises impact us. They create a, a, a place of insecurity of feeling less than somebody breaks a promise to you it it creates a disappointment or or creates a situation where you feel like you've been lied to somebody says they're going to do something or they're going to be part of something or they're going to have a commitment with you and then they break that and understand this every human being has the capacity to make a promise and break it they do why Because we're fallen. We are not perfect within this. But God never breaks His Word. Ever. Now, I've talked with a lot of people, you know, in in my years of ministry, where they go, well, I can't trust God. God has broken His promise here, broken His promise there. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. God never breaks His promise within this. He always keeps His Word. Why? Because God has the power to always keep His Word. We don't. With good intentions, we can make a promise, but 
many times we can come up short just because of our inability to follow through. You think about this. Why can God, or how is it that God can make a promise and always keep it? Well, one, He's omnipotent. He makes a promise and He can keep it because He's all-powerful. He can make a promise and He can keep it because He's omniscient. In other words, I can make a promise, and I don't know what the future holds, but God does within this. And we think His, His, His ability to make the promise, and He makes that promise to so many people, to everyone, because He's omnipresent. Now, that's a condition that I don't have, and I don't know anybody in this room does. So when you think about who is it you're going to trust, for a promise made and a promise kept, the only one, only one, that can, can make that claim is God. Everybody else will fail you. You think, thanks, Carrie, I really wanted to come to church to hear this. <laughs> it's important for us to understand that, though, because... When we make promises to God or we enter into a covenant relationship with God, there's two kinds of covenant relationships. There's the covenant relationship that's called a unilateral. In other words, a unilateral covenant relationship or unilateral promise is a promise based on one person making that promise and that one person fulfilling that promise. So we have unilateral promises from God. In other words, God makes the promise and God is fully responsible to fulfill that. The Abrahamic covenant is a, a unilateral uh, promise or covenant. Then we come to a different kind of covenant or promise and that's called a bilateral. A bilateral covenant or promise is a, is a commitment between two people. The Mosaic covenant. Or the covenant of law. That's bilateral. In other words, God says, if you do this, I'll bless you. And if you do this, then there's a punishment. And then on the other side, mankind says, yes, I'll obey the law. And so there's this bilateral agreement. Marriage covenants. Bilateral between two people within that. And so there is a, a human responsibility that is in this. One of the things that we've been learning through this lesson in the land of Cana is God fulfilling a unilateral covenant or promise that he made to the nation of Israel. Now, again, when you get to this crisis of faith and you go, God, you said, but it's not happening the way you said, we got to go back and we got to go, okay, wait a minute. First, did God really say that? And second, did I understand it to be a promise directly from God? And then I got to take a look at timing. God, you said you're going to do this, but you're not doing it in my time. Well, if God doesn't perform in my time, does that mean that God broke his promise? No. So we, so we got to look at that. And as we understand this giving of the land, it's all part of that, this, this faithfulness. The, the fact of the matter is God will always be faithful. And it is up to us to respond faithfully within this. Now, what we also have to understand is this, that God in His promises will not bless the disobedient. 
He made a promise to Israel, brought them out of Egypt, but they were disobedient. So he said to the people that came out of Israel, you don't get to go in the land. Did God break his word? No. He just said, you're disobedient and I'm not blessing you, but I'm going to bless the next generation within that. Israel has been in and out of the land a couple of different times. They were in the land and then they were out of the land in captivity in the Assyrian Babylonian captivity. Then they were in the land and then they were out of the land in 70 AD when the temple fell. Guess where Israel is now? Where are they? Back in the land. Why? Because God keeps his word within that. And so we see Israel back in the land today. God said, go into the land and I will fight for you. That means you've got to fight. And, it, and God says, I'm going to fight for you. Now you need to do the work. It was time for Israel to claim a promise of inheritance that was given to them. And I want you to think about the promise of eternal life that God has given to you. For anyone who believes in their heart that Jesus died on the cross for them, and rose again and put their faith and trust in Him, is promised eternal life. That is a unilateral promise that God gives to the believer. So that when you die, you enter into eternal life and you don't go to eternal judgment. That is a promise that, that God gives to us. It is a promised inheritance and a promised land. We're picking up today with Judah getting their land. Caleb is the, is the main story within this chapter 15 of, of how God kept His promise, not just to Caleb, but Caleb wisely is setting up God's promise for the next generation to be able to pass that on. And it is a promise that God gave that took a long time to come to pass. Joshua chapter 11, verse 23 says, So Joshua took... The whole land, according to all that God had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to the divisions and the tribes in the land, and that they had rest. We can embrace the promises of God, because what He's given. Now, Joshua 15 has got 63 verses. We're not reading them all. But we are going to read a section that I want to cover this morning. So if you would stand as, as a practice, we give respect to God's Word. We're just going to read Joshua chapter 13, or 15, verses 13 to 19. It says this, Now he gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. And then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. And now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer or captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, as a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenes, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And so he gave him Aksha, his daughter, as a wife. And it came about when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. And so he alighted from the, she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And then she said, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. 
May God bless the reading of this word. You can be seated. And you all are going, what is that all about? The first part of uh, Joshua chapter 15 is, is, again, distributing land. Now, keep in mind within this, God is keeping his promises to all the people. And the promise was the land. And so they are in Gilgal. And by lot, as we studied last week, by lot, each tribe is going to get their portion of land. And we last left Caleb going to Joshua, saying to Joshua, hey, look, I've been faithful for 45 years fighting. I'm 85, and I want my piece of the land. I want the specific piece of the land, Hebron. Joshua said, yeah, you can, you can have that land. Now, Caleb was part of the tribe of Judah, and so they all came up um, to be able to receive their land. Now, one of the things that we've got to understand and, and is, this, is that this land was given... And Judah was first. So the question is, why did Judah get to go first? What made Judah so special that they get the first dibs on the land within this? It's because God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 49, 8 through 12, it says this. And this is Jacob, who's also known as Israel. He was a patriarch, gave the patriarchal blessing to his son. And he says this. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you gave up. He cows as he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Note, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties the foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And he washes his garments in wine and his robes in blood of grapes. And his eyes are dull from the wine and his teeth are white of milk. So what is that? There is a line in that passage that says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. What is that? The ruler's staff was the, the rule. So the blessing that was given to Judah was that there was going to be a king and an ongoing authority that would come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter is that ruling staff. And it says it will come from between his, his, his knees or his feet, which talks about the fact that it's going to be an ongoing thing. It's going to come from the ancestry that is within this. It's a messianic promise. We know that the scepter would run, according to this prophecy, through King David all the way to whom? Jesus. The Messiah. Judah was first because it is a prophecy that Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. They would take preeminence within this. In Numbers twenty four seventeen says, I see him now, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter will rise up from Israel, shall crush through the forehead of Moab, tear down the sons of Sheph. And in Psalm 45, 6, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of uprightness and a scepter of your kingdom. In this, it's a promise that God said to Judah, and so within this inheritance, as the lot was cast, they were given this portion of land. 
And then it would also be reiterated in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 8 through 16. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pasture and following the sheep to be ruler over my people. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will also appoint a place for my people in Israel and plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even the day that I commanded Judge be over my people Israel, and I will give them rest from all their enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord shall make a house for you when your days are complete and you lie down your fathers, talking about the temple. Most importantly, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men, strokes of the son, and my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom endures before me forever. And your throne shall be established for how long? Forever. All of that, that promise began with Abraham now passed on to Judah, that promise now made to Judah will pass on to King David. The promise made to King David is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, which is establishes an eternal kingdom within this. That's why he goes first within this until Shiloh comes. What is Shiloh? It's interesting because Shiloh is a thing and a name. Shiloh means peace. Happens to be the name of my lab, but it doesn't bring me much peace. <laughs> but within this, we think about this, this Shiloh. It's a place. It would be the place that Israel would move from Gilgal up to Shiloh to set up the tabernacle, the place of worship. But it is also a person. In Hebrew, it's Sith, which means peace or prince of peace. Until Shiloh comes. Who is Shiloh? The prince of peace. Who is the prince of peace? Jesus. And so we see this, this prince that is, that is given. And so within this, we have this prophecy being made. Again, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. When did that happen? Palm Sunday. On a donkey. And even on a colt, a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse of Jerusalem. And a, and a bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Jesus' first advent appeared Palm Sunday when he appeared on a donkey coming down Palm Sunday Road. And they sang what? Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who what? Comes in the name of the Lord. That was his first advent. And then a pause. And he died for the sins of the world. 
was buried and rose again, ascended to heaven. He will come in His second advent. When Jesus comes and puts His foot on the Mount of Olives, splits it in two, and He will bring peace. He will set up His kingdom forever. This is a promise made through Judah. This is why Judah went first. Now, verses 2 through 12 gives us all of the boundaries. I'm not going to read them all the way through, but I do want to show you what it is, the boundaries that they have within this. So Judah's boundaries go from the, this northern tip of the Dead Sea all the way along the Dead Sea, all the way down to Kadesh Barnea. You should recognize Kadesh Barnea. Why? Because it was the place where Moses went with the first 12 spies to be able to go in and to spy out this land that is there. Runs all the way across to the Mediterranean Sea, up through the Gaza Strip, and then back across here. Note Jerusalem right here. It's on the edge of Benjamin, and it's on the edge of Judah that is here. Simeon will get their land in the middle. But note that it's right here. This runs right along a valley or a rift that is up through this land to the Mount of Olives that's right there within this. When we go to Israel in March, we'll be, we'll be traveling all the way along. We'll go to En Gedi, and then we'll go all the way across. Actually, we're going to be down here. We'll travel all the way across here. One of the important things to understand this is that this land was given as a promise within this. They would form the southern kingdom eventually in all of this. He said, Carrie, why is that important? Because the promise that was made to Abraham continued all the way through even to this day. God makes a promise and God will keep a promise. And He made this promise to the nation of Israel within this. And it is a land that, that they would be blessed with. Within that land being distributed, by now Caleb heads over to Hebron into that land. Look at verse 13. It says, And now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord, and carrieth Arba to Achan. So, it's now time for Caleb to get his reward. Now, we know that Caleb was asking for this land, and as we covered last week, he's 85. What does he want to go do? Fight giants. This little five-foot-five guy wants to go after somebody that's like at least one or bigger. And he wants to go. Okay, great. You're going to go and do it? The Bible says he does. In fact, he goes out and he receives this land and Caleb is given Hebron. Now, here is where Hebron is. Hebron is right here. This ridge of mountains that runs all the way across here, this is the hill country. Jerusalem is right here. And he goes in and he goes after this this area, this hill country, and he's going after the giants, the Anakim that are in this land. Hebron is, is in, in, we won't go to Hebron because it's in the West Bank, so it's, it's actually under Palestinian control as it is right now. They're just kind of squatting on the land. It's really God's land, and it should be occupied by Israel within this. This land on this West Bank is, is mountainous, it's difficult, but Caleb had a heart of a lion. And it came time for him to do something. Claim the promise. God made the promise. Caleb needed to claim the promise. 
God has given you the promise of eternal life. When does eternal life begin? When you die? No. No. Eternal life begins the moment in time when you confess your sins, God forgives you of your sins, He takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh and fills you with His Spirit. Eternal life begins then. What does that mean? That means now is the time to claim the inheritance of eternal life. Not when you die. Death is a doorway, a transition into experiencing the fullness of eternal life. But you can have that now. Maybe this morning you haven't done that. Maybe you haven't claimed that, that promise. Maybe this morning you haven't received that promise. It's up to you. It's a promise that is out there for you to accept. If you would accept Jesus as, as that Savior and that Lord. But you've got to do it with boldness. Caleb was bold. He believed God's promise to be sure. Because he knew that he would be able to win within this. He was not fighting his own. He was fighting with God. How do we know that? Because in Joshua 14.12, he says, The Lord will fight with me. There's a lot of people that fight against God. But question. Is it better to fight against God or is it better to fight with God? That's, that's an easy answer. I'm going to fight with God. I'm not going to fight against But how many people are fighting against God? You imagine what you can accomplish if you fight with God according to His will to receive His promise. 85-year-old man going and fighting giants in Hebron to be able to be in this place. And he goes after the sons of Anak. Now, the king was killed by Joshua, but he had three boys. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 22, it says, When they had gone up into the Negev, they came up to Hebron, where Haman, Shashai, and Talmuth, and the descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. So these guys were already in power within this. And they were targets within this. And God promised to fight with Israel. I want you to think about this for a minute. What would it have been like if Israel would have really believed the promise of God? I mean, really believed it. And said, God, you said we get this land. You said that, we would, that you would fight with us. And you said that, that you would displace all these people. God, we're going to fight with you in these things. What would it be like if Israel really believed those promises? Would Israel have gone through the idolatry and been removed from the land in the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions? No. Would they have gone through the process of coming back into the land and then rejecting the Messiah being removed in 70 A.D.? No. And then being out of the land until they come back into the land? Would they have gone through the difficulties of all of the suffering of having to live with these people in the land, that God said, I will fight with you and remove all of these people out of your land. 
in all of the struggles, when you read the Old Testament and you see everything that Israel went through, and God said, I promise to be your God, you promise to be my people, and, and, but you've got to do everything I, I tell you to do. Remove the people of the land, remove the idolatry from the land, and you are going to have a blessed land. Then I think about our Christian journey. How many struggles in our life do we bring upon ourselves because we don't really embrace the promises of God? We really don't. We compromise. We allow these things to come in. Caleb had the heart of a lion because he was fighting with the Lord to defeat the enemies of Anak. And he wanted to remove every remnant of evil out of the land. So that there would be no way that idolatry could come back in. I challenged you a few weeks ago to look at your house and look at your things. Look at the stuff that you've got going on inside your house. Is there footholds where Satan can get a foothold in your, in your house, in your, in your life, in those things? Are there things that you're battling with? That wouldn't be a battle if he completely got rid of it. Caleb was fighting. He was fighting to receive that promise. We need to learn to not be passive about our faith. Passive about following Christ. We need to be active and fight the good fight. Paul would tell Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of that eternal life within that. Be in that place. Embrace it and embrace the promise that God has for you. Not only did Caleb fight the good fight in here, as we, as we said in verse 14, where he drove out the three sons that were there, but then, he, verse 15, he goes up to the inhabitants of Debir and goes to that fight. And Caleb said, verse 16, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, as a wife. Now, Again, I want to show you where Debir is so that you know proximity. Hebron is up here. Debir is just south of this. It's in the land of the Hittites. There is, there is a lot of battle. And again, the battle has already happened there, but Caleb goes down to fight this fight and he stops. Now, was Caleb stopping and not fighting in Debir because he didn't think he could do it? No. But he looked at Debir and he says... How can I raise up the next generation? To the guy that goes in and captures this city, I'm going to give my daughter. Now, a lot of you women are probably going to look at this and go, that ain't right. How many of you want to be, would want to be a trophy wife? And dad says, I'm going to give my daughter away. To this now, if you were sitting there, if you were if you were this gal, Aksha, and you were looking at all the warriors, and you're like going, "Oh no, please, Lord, no, not that guy, not that guy, no." And, and you look at these warriors, and you're like, uh, "No, Dad, what are you doing?" You know, she doesn't argue about it. And, and here's the challenge: 
we have to be careful not to take our modern Western ideology and infuse it back into the old Near Eastern culture. This was normal for their culture. She doesn't argue about it. And so within this, she's going to be handed out to the guy that wins. Caleb is doing something very, very smart. He's empowering the next generation to take over. He knows he's 85. He's not going to be around. Who is going to run this inheritance that I have when I'm gone? Very smart. So he offers his daughter, and there's this guy by the name of Othniel. Othniel goes in and takes out the beer. Othniel becomes the first judge for the nation of Israel in Judges chapter 1. Othniel's name means God is my protection. And he was a valiant warrior. And even though Caleb got credit, he was giving his wife over to Othniel. And Othniel would take her as a wife and gave this land as a reward because he wanted to empower the next generation. Some of you people are old. The question is, who's going to be the church when you're gone? We have young people in this room. You young people. You are the next generation of the church. You are the ones that will carry it forward. Are you ready to fight the battle? Are you listening to the older generation to be coached? Older generation, are you empowering the younger people to do it? And releasing them and encouraging them within this. Caleb was doing something really smart. While he was yet alive, he was distributing the promise of God to the next generation within the scope and the realm of what he could do. He took the promise of God and made the next generation the recipients and also the receivers of that promise within that. Now, before we leave Exa within this, you might say, well, you know, she was just this little quiet girl that just accepted whatever dad said. No, don't, don't believe that. She got this land, and we see it says this after uh, Othniel, verse 17, captures the land, receives the wife, verse 18. It came about when she came to him, persuaded him, and asked the father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev, which means desert. Give me also the springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, you say, well, Carrie, how do you know that she was a little fireball? Well, one, she came to dad and she said, give me a blessing. Near Eastern culture, Othniel should have been the one doing it. Right? She went to her husband. She goes, I'll take care of this. Hey, dad. Okay. I want a blessing of land. Okay, you get the land. So she gets the land. She comes to dad. She goes, dad, there's a problem. 
You gave me land and there's no water on it. I need water. Okay, dear. I'm going to give you the upper reservoir and the lower reservoir. And he blessed her within that. You see, the heart of the lion of the father was transferred to the heart of the daughter within this. And she was looking to be successful with, within this. And we really don't see a whole lot about this relationship, but I think it's important to understand that Caleb was distributing the promises of God so the next generation would receive that promise and be blessed. He was equipping them for success by making those provisions that are there. But isn't that what God does? Doesn't God equip us for success? Every promise that He gives to us is for our success. Every activity that is divine from God in our life is for our success. Now, we may look at it and we may go, God, you gave me a desert. What's stopping you from going back to God and saying, God, give me some water for my desert? Nothing. You can go back and you say, God, thank you for the blessing. But these are the things I need to be successful. And God will honor that. And Caleb, in many ways, demonstrates how the promises of God can be given out and distributed. One of the things that we can understand is that God wants those promises to be passed from generation to generation. In Psalm 105, 8 through 10, it says, He has remembered His covenant for how long? Forever. The word which He commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac. And then He confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as a what kind of covenant? Everlasting. The next time you think that God doesn't keep His promises, you need to stop and reflect on historically how God has always kept His Word. And it may not have turned out the way you thought it should, but the embedded promises of God are going to happen according to His will. Passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to, to Israel and even Israel today, God keeps His promises to all generations. That's why it's imperative as an adult and as a mature adult to take all of the history of the promises of God that you've experienced and to pass them on to the next generation, which means you've got to talk with them and empower them and encourage them because God is faithful to keep all His promises. Verses 20 to 63. As we take a look at the remainder of this chapter, if you look at it in your Bibles, there is a bunch of names. We are not going to read 20 to 63. Remember, this is like a trust deed. And what it is, it's a celebration of Judah getting all of the, the, these lands, these cities. God gave Judah an abundant blessing within this. And so it's a summary of the cities. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 11 says this, And then it shall come a pass when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you didn't fill, hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you didn't eat or satisfy. You're going to get cities. 
So there's a listing. And if you're one that takes notes, in verses 21 to 32 are 29 southern cities. In verses 33 to 47, there's 35 western foothill cities and seven coastal cities, including the, land, the cities of the Philistines. In verses 48 to 60, there's 38 hill country cities. And in 61 to 62, there are six desert cities. That's a lot of cities. Judah got all of those cities and they didn't have to build anything. It was a walk-on. you imagine a walk-on? You were a slave in Egypt, you wandered the wilderness, and now you go in and you get a city. You get a, a city that you didn't have to build. You say, Carrie, why is that important? Here's why it's important. Understand this. Jesus has promised for you a new home in heaven. Not one built with hands. He says, I go to my Father's house and I prepare for you a dwelling place that where I am, you will be with me for how long? Forever. This is a picture of God's promises fulfilled on earth that is foretold to us to promise in heaven. So you got one job. Own your inheritance. Now, I want to end on verse 63 because it says this, and it's important for us to understand this. It says, Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the sons of Judah, note, could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. That's kind of an odd note. Why is it there? Did God tell Judah to live with the people? No. It says they could not drive them out. Was it because of God's failure or Judah's failure? Judah's failure. How do we know it was Judah's failure? Because many years later, King David would drive out all of the Jebusites and he would take control of the city. It was doable but they stopped short and they didn't occupy the land. You can read about it if you want in 2 Samuel 5, 5 through 10. But David would go in and he'd wipe them all out. It wasn't because Judah couldn't do it. It's because they decided they didn't want to fight the fight all the way to the end. God made a promise and God will keep His promise. Fight. Starting now. To claim that inheritance that you have. That in the name of Jesus and that inheritance that's been given to you, you will enter into that, that, that life of victory. Not being dominated by sin, sorrow, and shame anymore. Defeating the enemy. We sang it earlier in 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For as many are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give to us this eternal hope, your power, your presence, and your promises. May we walk in these promises and enjoy the victories that are ours even now. 
Lord, we have a next generation, and if you tarry for that next generation, a generation after them, may we declare these promises to the next generation that they would be able to know you, God, personally, and walk in those promises until that day that our kids and our grandkids would see you face to face. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. one thing that I want to encourage you to do. Tomorrow night at 6.30, I'm going to ask that you go to war. And the weapons of our warfare is prayer. Uh, the Christian school is going to be meeting with the county commissioners and looking at trying to get the permit necessary to be able to get the property built. And so um, I'm calling you guys out to pray. Uh, to be in prayer for that because it really has been a giant that needs to fall. 
And so within that, we are going to trust in God with that. So God, as we uh, look to invest in the next generation, your word, we pray for that event. We pray for the next generation that is represented in this room and in this community, in our campuses and our school. May we be like Caleb, have the heart of the lion, to be able to, to embrace those promises and pass those promises on to the next generation, that they will know a God that loves them, that has made promises to them, and will keep them. So, Father, I pray for those maybe tonight or today that are struggling with uh, embracing those promises. God, may they know you and that promise that you have for them. We thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.